You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Elodie Silberstein, an artist and an adjunct associate professor at Pace University. She holds a Doctor of Philosophy from the School of Media, Film, and Journalism at Monash University and a Master's of Fine Arts from the University of Paul Valéry, based in Montpellier, France. Her research focuses on the representations of femininity in the visual landscape, from fine art to mass media, as a prism through which to map issues of social justice in a globalized world. She investigates the way these depictions have reflected social, racial, and environmental inequalities at a geopolitical level. In this conversation, we discuss animality and humanity in French late modern representations of black femininity, where she examines the evolution of the depictions of black femininity in French visual culture. In this monograph, Dr. Silverstein traces the ways a patriarchal imperialism and a global capitalism have paired black women with the realm of nature to justify the exploitation both of people and of ecosystems. So we're here today with Dr. Elodie Silverstein. Thank you very much for joining us. We're really happy to have you here. Um, So before we delve into your book, I wanted to start by asking you the origins of the project. So a sort of invitation to narrate us um, into the project, how you came into it, what sort of concerns, personal, ethical, philosophical, that drew you to the questions in animality and humanity in French late modern representations of Black femininity. So why this project and why now? Well, first, I would like to thank you for your invitation. It's an absolute pleasure for me to converse with you today. I think that to answer your question, I will really need to go back to my childhood. I grew up between Cameroon, the country of my father, and France, the country of my mother. And this was really um, one of the (laughs) best places to observe this um, racial and species hierarchy. Um, yet yeah, two things particularly um, really um, are striking for me. The first one, when I was a child, I remember my mother speaking, I, I went to a French school in Douala, Dominique Savio. Um, so I had French, uh, white friend, and my mother was speaking to um, the mother of one of my friends. And she said, you know, what did you do this weekend? And the person said, oh, we went you know, in this event. And there were all the monkeys on the trees. And my mother, in her naivety, said, oh, yeah, because at the time, in specific place in Douala, you could see monkeys on trees. And she said, no, but I mean the black people. So my mother was obviously 
bit stone. And she said to um, this woman who was uh, Miss Ferry, well, I think you actually um, you are in the wrong place. You should not be in Cameroon. You should be in South Africa where there's still apartheid. And um, so it's, I was really young at the time, but I really remember the animalization of black people at a time where you need to remember that um, Cameroon was colonized by Germany, uh, 1884 until World War One, and after it was under the administration of French, uh, mainly, and beat the British. Um, only in 1960, Cameroon was able, after a lot of guerrilla and you know resistance, to have its independence. So I live in Cameroon in the 70s, just a decade after the independence of Cameroon. So fresh. I never at school we had any talk about colonization of slavery. So the animalization of black people, it's something I grew up with between France and, and Cameroon. The second thing that was really um, important in my childhood that motivated me to write this book is that I really, I think, witnessed the end of an era, the end of something in Cameroon. Um, there was a lot of porosity at the time between human and non-human animals. So there was clad of bats on the sky regularly. Um, and once my mother find a mamba vert, a snake, in you know a cupboard. There were maguya everywhere. I was so scared of them when I was a child. It's kind of little lizard full of color. Um, all of that, I mean, last time I went to Cameroon a decade ago, yeah, well, I didn't see. Um, and that's not surprising because at the same time, well, there were ivory everywhere. And I have to say that the first gift of my father was a little jewelries in ivory. And that was completely normal at the time. Uh, everybody had jewelries in ivory. There were ostrich eggs that were decorating houses. Um, there was a lot of exploitation of um, natural resource. So a lot of French company were there to exploit this resource. So I, I really grew up in, in this environment. So somehow, I think I always carry this project. And when I become a scholar, and it was time for me to write my first book, it's kind of naturally that I wanted to trace the representation of black femininity in French visual culture. For me, as a way to understand wildlife trade and its racial imaginary, that was really about understanding how imperialism and capitalism had associate black women with the realm of nature to be able to exploit both people and ecosystem. That's very interesting, and thank you for sharing um, that story. I think in your introduction, you wrote how um, I wish I did not have to write this book, um, which I was, you know, that made me, it was sad, but it also made me smile because there was, it was very honest and transparent in terms of how the racial structures or the the racism that you can see how your white friends couldn't see them and it was like a, a colorblind france right and then you add in um the animality and the discourse of putting those two together um 
can you speak a little bit about the because it, it, it's not easy, even reading your book. The, and I, I just really appreciated the transparency you had throughout the book. You were like, this is not an easy subject to talk about. <laughs> so um, can you speak a little bit about the process? Yeah, it's, um, in fact, I was in the United States um, teaching at Pace University. I'm a lecturer at Pace University. So that was in the middle of covid and that's also happened um, just after the death of George Floyd. Um, so I was here, I was writing the book and hearing, you know, the helicopter because they were monitoring um, all the Black Lives Matter um, gathering, etc. So that was really a very... Um, emotional process for me. And that was extremely emotional to be in the United States to write the book. Because you're completely right. The most painful things, um, because it, it has been a bit of a journey, I've been to realize that in France, this question, it's very difficult for French people to be able to speak about it. Uh, French still live under this ideal of, um, this Republican ideal of color blindness and universalism. Um, so there's really this tension between this ideal and the reality where whiteness is still synonymous of Frenchness. And black people has to live with this tension. So, yeah, it's quite fascinating for me when I came back in France for my research trip and met my friend who are very educated people. We are speaking of journalists, you know, etc. Um, they, they more or less tell me, why are you writing this book? You know, there's, there's no need of that. It's not like in the United States. It's in France. And what was interesting for me is that that was difficult to argue with them because so often, you know, there's no racial statistic in France. And I realized how much rest, racial statistic, that's such a powerful toll. You could not speak about, for example, the difference between the number of black people who die um, when they try to have access to health compare with, you know, the number of white people, et cetera. So that's that's conversation which are really difficult um, to have. So yes, it, it was a, a journey uh, for me and I was in New York. Uh, so that make it extremely special in terms of having this transnational approach and, you know, uh, hearing um, American scholar, which is, there's so many... African-American scholar, there's such a wealth of, you know, knowledge accumulate uh, in, in America. So this is quite mind-blowing for me uh, to, to have been able to write this book in, in this condition. It's a book which is between France, Cameroon, United States, you know, it's... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I and I, I, it's definitely while well, you read the book, I get that sense. Uh, but it's also you know you put in COVID nineteen, so it's also like a universal issue. And then even reading the book, I was like, well, this is not done. You know, whether you're speaking about the nature of power um, and controlling of natural resources. Now, if you look on the continent of Africa, or I'll specifically focus on Senegal because that's what I know. <laughs> um, you know. Um, 
how you have the Chinese coming in, so now you have another pull of power um, and the deterioration of um, marine life and sea life and what they're doing to the coast. But um, that's a tangent. <laughs> so it's, it's Very important comment. <laughs> yeah, and so your book really ties a lot of threads together. Um, have, okay, so we'll just get into that a little. You have two interesting chapters on Josephine Baker, which I totally love. You put, um, yes, it's, you know, Josephine Baker's in the scholarship. However, you add a little bit more to it. Right, so you argue that how the visual representations that we've consumed so far, the aesthetics and these um, eroticized modes of representation, really um, we've naturalized the dehumanization of you know racial communities, and we've all had this liking, um, even if it's unconscious, a favorism of species. Um, I can only say that word hierarchy in French. <laughs> Every time I see the English word, like my eye twitches. So just a species hierarchy, <laughs> um, favorism that we've had, um, and these the the species favorism and the the race the racialized communities. We see the concrete effects on the world today, right? Because of the aesthetics. So can you speak how you relate this argument of um, eroticized modes of representation of Black people and of animals? Um, but, and you relate it to Josephine Baker. So if you're thinking, how did I come up with this question? I think when you were telling the story, you shared the story of Josephine, uh, one of Josephine Baker's adopted sons who um, was in an interview and, you know, he was talking about his mom and he said that mom was a whole human being. But this was after they, she was memorialized in France as being part of important to the culture. Um, and that struck that struck a chord with me because um, it's to say at some point, Josephine Baker wasn't considered a human. And then afterwards, I think it was around 2018, 2019, they were like, wait a minute, she is a human being. <laughs> you know, she's she's important to the culture. And it's crazy because how can you look at French history and French entertainment and not think about Josephine Baker and the movement that she's created and she made and the fascination. However, fascination can be an interesting term when it comes to... Um, animals and black people during the day right so um that was a lot of words but yes <laughs> yeah no you're completely right um so it's bouillon one of the 12 child of uh, josephine baker who made this comment and and this was yes um during the pantheonization of josephine baker by french president emmanuel macron and exactly like you, that's a comment that really resonates in me uh, in the same way. And the things that threw my mind, because, you know, he, he, it was really, he, he pointed out, oh, now she's a whole human being. France is acknowledging, what France is acknowledging is her humanity. And um, the first thing that threw my mind is that when we think of Josephine Baker, we think of somebody 
bubbly, you know, laughing, full of energy, and um, somebody happy. And more importantly, somebody who make us, because it's all about us, it's not about her, happy. However, Josephine Baker went through a lot of unhappiness, a lot of problem. And I think that one of the reasons of um, sometimes, you know, when you could feel a deep trauma is also the fact that she has never been really considered exactly like Urson point out, as a world person. And um, when you think of a movie, Zuzu, for example, 1934, uh, directed by Marc Allegri, there are so many hints who tell us that, you know, the fact that as a child she put powder on her skin to try to be white, which apparently Josephine Baker was having a special recipe to try to, you know, be whiter. The fact that despite um, the fact that she was at the time very well paid, recognized the, in the narrative, she fall in love with Jean, uh, with Jean Gabin, famous French, um, French actor. And in fact, he considered her like his little kind of sister. Um, but he's not, he, France could not look at interracial love. They could not have Josephine Baker. Well, they could not have Jean Gabin, who was already a star at the time, falling in love with Josephine Baker. And um, I do, in fact, in the book, an analysis of the um, filmic seconds where you see that ultimately, despite the fact that, you know, um, she's looked at with fascination, she's well-paid, and in the movie, uh, she's considered to um, have this sudden success because she become a star, um, she animalized, she's an exotic bird and she's a mechanized bird and she's trapped. She's trapped in her life. So there's all analysis about this, um, about this idea. But I do think that, yeah, Josephine Baker, uh, was having a lot of pain because she was always very aware that despite everything, she was not fully recognized by the French. And when you read a bit about her relationship with non-human animals because she was having rat, uh, cheetah, gold chiquita, and a long, you know, list of um, non-human friends. I, I think that's really encapsulate uh, the pain she had. And um, she also have a gorilla at the time, which was shot because he escaped. Chiquita, which was a cheetah, finished his life in zoo, which she probably uh, died quite quickly because cheetah in zoo, especially at the time, don't do very well in captivity. But um, what I was able to find about her relationship with, you know, her gorilla, bubu, etc., was very, very close, very, you know, and that was a time where she went through a lot of trauma in her life and nobody speak about that because we want to remember Josephine Baker as a proof of success of French assimilationist model, model. and a lot you know has been said when now when you hear the speech of Emmanuel Macron this is very difficult for me to not be frustrated I had so many friends who sent me some text saying isn't it wonderful look and I was like yeah, that's 
great that she's memorials in a place where she's next to Victor Hugo and Marie Curie. But at the same time, this there's only a part of Josephine Baker that people want to see. And they certainly do not want to acknowledge this history of pen, which is linked to, you know, French alienating historical past in terms of colonization um, and how black people were perceived at the time and how black people are still perceived today. And also, what does it say about um, the acknowledgement of humanity for a black person's humanity? So is it a life of struggle and pain um, for um, for memorialization if you're not even here. <laughs> and it's continuing today. Um, and then we only see what a little bit of your life that's, like you said, entertainment. And the rest is sadness, all for to be memorialized. That's, that's That doesn't sound motivating. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, in 30 years, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Maybe then, whatever you did, <laughs> or whatever you shared with the world, maybe we'll acknowledge you. So it was, mm-hmm. even when you put, I remember that sentence, you said she's, now she's next to Victor Hugo, and I'm like, but what does that mean if she lived an unhappy life? So, um, and it also, while you were speaking, it reminded me of your chapter five, when you talk, speak about Grace Jones, mm-hmm. um, the Jamaican-American model and performer who, she was quite literally used in a cage, her, her, her performance. So can you speak about that? Because that's also um, animalization of Grace Jones. Yeah, it's really a famous image, um, which was made by Jean-Paul Good, which is a um, yeah, very recognized, very established designer, photographer, artist. And I... I really also grew up with this image, kind of in the 80s. And initially, it was a performance. So, and it was a performance um, in the United States. And um, it seems that the atmosphere was surchargé, was really very... <laughs> and uh, there was a tiger in a cage, a true tiger in a cage. And Grace, Grace Joan arrived and kind of they both roar at each other and interact. And suddenly everything went black. So the audience was... <gasps> can imagine the mise-en-scene, which was very dramatic and the- theatrical. And when the light came back, Grass Jaune, uh, half neck was inside the cage. Um, so it was, you know, a uh, very interesting performance. <laughs> this is, this is for sure. Um, and I thought, why at this time in France, people connected so much with this image, with this world, with, with Jean Paul Good imaginary, um, in the 80s, you know, from kind of late 70s, 80s, and 90s. Why did he become famous beyond, yes, he's a, you know, um, great artist aesthetically, but clearly his image are very alienating, um, and, uh, at two level, racial and, um, especially alienation. So, I really try to understand. And when you look at the image, 
she's eroticized and uh, animalized because of her neckness, which there's a long history of having a black woman neck, you know, um, from Sarah Bartman to when you think of postcards, I have a collection of postcards uh, during the old 20th century um, of black woman uh, neck, uh, which of course go in opposition with this kind of white, modest, respectable white femininity. So she's anonymized because of her neckness. But very interesting, this big bar in a cage, um, that's an important part of um, describing her as a ferocious, carnivorous being. And what really strikes me is that at the time, um, well, John Paul Good had a very interesting childhood, I have to say. Uh, he grew up near Vincenzo, which was near Musée des Colonies. Uh, so, you know, um, he grew up with this imagery of, um, you know, seeing sculpture on the facade of uh, neck a woman of color. And he also had this strong uh, experience of uh, seeing um, black people performing or what he thought was black people. He had this argument with his father about <laughs> if there were white people um, performing and pretending. But yes, he, he grew up in a very colonialist and specist imagery um, at the time. But what was um, quite outstanding for this young boy is that he had access because of a friend to Vincent Zoo when there were nobody. And at the time, the zoo was really designed according to the principle of Karl Eigenbeck. Now, this is really an important name. He was an important German animal trader, but not only that, but um, he designed zoo in a way uh, which removed these big bars. Um, so you really, when you look at the zoo, you have the impression that there's no barrier because it's done through big rock or little river. Or, so this impression of freedom, but this impression that you share the same space with non-human animal. Of course, that's all fake, and they are still <laughs> tremendously suffering because they are still, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, but, but have a cage with these big bars and when they are surrounded by people um, and that they feel very stressed and it's very traumatic. But this is still an, um, an architecture of control, of course. So Jean-Paul Good grew up at night jumping on big rock and having this, this space of freedom. And, you know, um, he also grew up uh, with the jet set. Um, so yes, this, this, this imaginary of freedom. But what it did with Grace Jones is that he completely confined her in the contrary, you know, so he animalized her and make us being this ferocious being um, in a, a kind of more pre-modern cage. Um, so, um, and the things that really strike me with this idea of, um, you know, Grace Jones, uh, this performance of um, bestiality and of... Um, uh, aggressivity is that at the same time Jean-Paul Good was having a very different approach when he was animalizing white women, the white body. I think, for example, you know, of uh, the added for Coco Chanel, where Vanessa Paradis is a little bird, but she represents a French Parisian, and Jean-Paul Good says, "Oh, she's so refined." So she's embodied culture, French culture, French high culture, when Grajon is really um, 
well, the whole contrary. I also remember an uh, ad for Gallery Lafayette, a sort of famous department store, where uh, there's a woman who interact, a white woman who interact with a tiger, but she's riding side saddles a tiger. She's controlling the tiger. We are in an imaginary of control of nature, when clearly Grace Jones, she's the tiger. She's replacing the tiger. This is, um, you know, a, a straight, such a straightforward animalization of black women, which, which is really difficult to. Yeah, it, it's so much over your face. It was even noticed, please do not feed the animal <laughs> in case, you know, um, that was not straightforward enough in front of your eyes. So um, after, you know, analyzing the image, um, what I think is going on is that um, this is really a theater of aggressivity. And in fact, there's a previous chapter in my book of, I speak of theater of civility. The expression was caught by Peter Salam and in fact, Louis Cator's, um, and that's really an important point, I think, because it's a turning point in uh, French history. Uh, before Louis Cator's, uh, there was really a lot of display of aggressivity, like animal fight, etc. And he completely understood that if actually you display, um, you, you, how to say that, you depict how well you control nature by having, for example, bird, ornamental bird, passive bird, um, how much that could act as symbolic domination. So he bring all this, you know, in Versailles, he's the one who engineered Versailles. Um, the aristocracy was absolutely not impressed, which for me make me laugh because now people see Versailles as a, oh, of course, but, you know, when it was built, people thought, no way I will live in this place. But <laughs> he was extremely smart. He understood the power, you know, how depiction and uh, mise-en-scene staging of non-human animals could act as a toll of social control. And that was really, um, that was really smart. So he staged all this non-human animal, um, very passive and ornamental, and that was a way to pacify at the time the aristocracy. Um, so a lot of image uh, of animalization of black women at a certain time. For example, in the movie Zuzu, um, uh, Josephine Baker is trapped in a cage physically. She's on display. She's just here for our scopophilic pleasure. It's an image of domestication in a theater of civility. Um, but Grace Jones, that's his contrary. It's a theater of aggressivity where differences, um, racial species, sexual differences are created, emphasized. Um, so you see, for example, um, a theater of civility. When I think of Josephine Baker in 1933 for a movie, Zuzu, that's time of the colonization. Uh, that's a very short time after 1931, uh, where there's a, a big international um Fair, uh, that display, uh, the empire, you know, how, where France is advertising, uh, its empire. So you use this kind of image of domestication to say, oh, look, you know, we colonize them. 
you know, they are domesticate. Uh, but grace jaune is a very different time. This is a time which it's post-colonial time. And uh, that's a time which also very interesting when you think of it, uh, the jet set, Studio 54, uh, there's a boom. You begin to have jet engine and the jet age 1950, where rich people begin to travel, but you have to wait 1970 when it begin to be kind of more the middle class. So that my generation, I really saw it. Again, it's, it's something I experienced seeing that where um, French people wanted to go abroad, wanted to go to Thailand, wanted to go to Cameroon to experience um, geographically, to discover a different culture, but sexually too. And this is really something <laughs> I saw a lot um, in Cameroon, uh, but also just thinking of movie like Emmanuel, so very famous erotic movie set uh, uh, in Thailand and in well, in a lot of different countries because it got so much success that there were a lot of copy. So you see, that's a time where France want to exacerbate this difference, sexual, racial, and, you know, spaces. And that's also a time when you think of the 80s, um, that's what they call the Generation Benetton, this famous advertising where there's all the people together, there's, you know, more so-called mixed-race people like me um, on display. So it's kind of a time where French people say, oh, look, fantastic, this diversity. And that's a time where people begin to think, oh, there's a lot of mixed way. Let's put back this boundary. Let's make sure to say, you know, um, let's have a good theater of aggressivity to reassure us um, to reassure that there's still these big borders. We are not the same. So I think that, yes, um, black women are trapped between this image of uh, when animalized, they are either domesticated to show that, you know, French expertise in domesticating them, or it's a theater of aggressivity where uh, that's the contrary. This is to show a perceived alterity. Wow, that was a, I don't think you could have put that in, in any like better words, especially uh, while you're speaking about the Coco Chanel advertisement. I exactly know which one came to mind. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes. Like, you know, the white backdrop, the white fair skin. <laughs> it's just like the image of just pure delicacy. <laughs> like, I feel like it's like if you watch hard enough, you could break your TV screen. So it's like, you know, <laughs> look away. This is super delicate. You know, this woman and this bird. Um, but then, yeah, when you think about like the black models, it's, it's in an aggressive, controlling fashion. And like you said, it's racial reassurance for France um, that they're still the world leaders and that um, kind of like a like we're OK. And I think um, I one of my professors, Dr. Piki Caro, she I remember she assigned for my master's the Venus Noir. And that's when I heard of Sarah Bartman and how she played such a critical role in, um, you know, just 
racial reassurance for uh, France during a time where their egos were bruised. I think that's the only way, the best way I could put it. And you speak about that too in one of your chapters, uh, Sarah Bartman and how she was used um, for entertain. It was just that, I think reading Sarah Bartman's stories are never easy. Those are the ones where I always need a break. I can't finish a full chapter because of just the um, the dehumanization of her body. Um, it's I I just I can't like it. I cannot imagine you know the hurt or. I just I just can't. I it's um it's a little painful to read um her stories and when scholars try their best to of course put it out there and I think one of the things I appreciated also in your book is you explicitly state um that you do not you're not going to be partaking in um reproducing images of symbolic violence that one of the hardest things was to choose which pictures to put in the book and which was not. And I really appreciate that intentionality and how you vouch for um, you doing it yourself, but also advocating for others to practice an ethics of care, right? So why, which images should you produce in a book? Why? So yes, we need to show these hidden images, but what am I also putting into the world by showing these image, these hidden images, um, the violence that you're reproducing? So just can you mention or talk a little bit about this ethics of care um, when dealing with uh, Black femininity representations and not wanting rep- to reproduce colonial um, structures that was placed? Um, and also, I remember reading it, and I remember once in class, I was like, we should just burn it all down. But <laughs> no, that's, 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 I think I think I was super upset by something, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, I don't recommend burning on the <laughs> I don't recommend burning the archive, yeah. but I do um, understand completely your feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, look, um, that was excruciating to choose image. And I didn't anticipate that I would spend so much time working on my image. Um, So it's at two levels, at a practical and conceptual level that was excruciating. Of course, all the company and artists I contacted never gave me the right to reproduce the image. Um, for example, Jean-Paul Good. I, I, w- I have to say, I would have been shocked if I would have received an email where he would have told me, oh, yeah, of course, please use this image. <laughs> um, especially, he did precise. I remember reading, somebody asked him, are you ashamed? Uh, no, are you proud of all your image? It was well, it, it was well written. And he said, um, there's only one image, and that was this image, Grace Jordan Cage, that he regret to have done. But, you know, beyond that, unfortunately, Jean-Paul Gaud was not, um, he's absolutely not realizing what the impact that his imagery had on people. He's, it's, that's fascinating for me to read what he wrote and, um, you know, about his own image. So obviously, I didn't get, you know, the right to reproduce certain image. But the other things I didn't anticipate is that 
not only there are not many images of black women, but when they are, they cost a fortune. So Josephine Baker is completely fetishized. And, um, well, with my um, very high salary in academia, <coughs> I was really able to... There you get the Louis Vuitton and, you know... <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, you know, no problem uh, to buy this color resolution image. Um, this is, the price is absolutely shocking. So, I mean, I even going to flea market because I'm obsessed with, you know, historical material. So each time I go to France, uh, where there's so many, because it's a conservative culture, they love to keep things, which, you know, um, that's true that you have a lot generally for a price that could be accessible, except for image, card, postcard of, you know, um, black people. And uh, I will see a postcard, which really is interesting, um, which of course is generally alienating, <laughs> you know, but, and the person would say, oh yeah, yeah, it's 80 euro. No, and I'm like, Mm. And it's kind of a multi-layer exploitation. So not only the postcard <laughs> is here depicting, for example, a black man with a fan, mocking the fact that this black man is having all this refined manner, but his neck so clearly, you know, uh, is a savage slash, you know, animal. Um, and the person in front of me is very comfortable telling me 80 euro. It's, it's kind of a multi-layer exploitation. Like you feel that never finished, you know? It's so like it's um, like your book in a snapshot. Like you would just take a picture and you're like, this is, this is it right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, really. I mean, it's, it's so um, at a certain stage, I felt very, you know, stressed because I look at, because I, you know, put everything in a board, I do a mood board and try to see how the image interact with each other, etc. And I remember thinking, there's mainly image of white woman. This is a book about black woman and I have mainly image of white woman, um, which I mean, it's, it was important for me to show, to compare them because what is clear through the book is that although black and white woman has been animalized that has been in a very different way and that white woman was for certain social class i've used this class racial and spacey distinction um so anyway so it's it's it was interesting for me to to show this different image but still because of this very concrete problem i end up with a book i feel very frustrated with because i would have loved to put more image of black woman. So from a practical point of view, that was frustrating. And exactly as you mentioned, from a conceptual point of view, uh, that was challenging because I know very well that if you don't show image, people have difficulty believing you, relating to you, like, you know, so, um, but this image clearly, uh, image that still convey because unfortunately, a lot of these artifacts are still linked with the daily reality of a lot of black women who continue to have their body erased, ignore, fetishize, etc. So, um, and for me, the controversy around the book Sex, Race and Colony, edited by uh, Blanchard and the List of Scholars, this is a massive book, um, very 
it, it's a mind-blowing book, in fact, um, and an important book. And, you know, I do really... That says something, the fact that there's more and more scholars in France who could publish book like that. And also, I mean, I was completely amazed to discover how vast this archive of exploitation of women of color was, because it's a book that cover, um, that tried to cover, you know, uh, a few continents. Uh, so really an, an important book. However, what really was missing was how to say that to not just have a point of view, which is a scholarly point of view. He is the object of my research. Where again, you, I don't, I don't like to use the word dehumanize a person because that makes kind of human as, you know, uh, as an exceptional species, like uh, that creates this, this hierarchy again. But do you see what I mean? Um, and of course, what happened is that, uh, some black women saw this image and they were deeply shocked and um, they wrote an article which was an important and interesting article saying that that's a reproduction of this trauma that is happening for them. And all this color, um, that was very disappointing for me that there was no conversation. One of the arguments was, oh, but this image belonged to everybody. This is our archive. So they frame the argument as what these young women are seeing is that they own this image, but it's not what they were seeing, you know, and that's always um, the case in this kind of controversy. What this woman wanted was to be sure to be included in um, this kind of research, that us as researchers, we just don't see our perspective and our interests, which will just be repeating what has already been done in the past, but that we try to understand, you know, uh, our responsibilities, the impact of this image. And when I think of a book, uh, something that I find problematic is that it's really a coffee table book format, uh, there's an accumulation of image which go beyond understanding, you know, the denunciation uh, showing that there's such a vast um, network of image in the archive, which metaphorically shows the amount, you know, of um, exploitation that was. Um, also, the way some image are framed, staged, etc. <sighs> still bring um, a scopophilic pleasure which, you know, uh, which is uncomfortable. So that's not surprising at all that this book challenged people in a way that, you know, it should probably not um, have happened. So I, I think the controversy is really interesting because I work with image. That's really my <laughs> the basis of my work. Um, so when... I mean, my book is looks very scholarly. That's black and white image, and you know, there's no kind of particular staging. Uh, I speak of something specific, and after there's an image, so that's all the code of a scholarly book. Um, but yeah, I definitely decided to not include the most exploitative image, basically. Um, and I hope I find 
the right balance. You, you never really know. And when you, when you're in front of students, you know, when you lecture, you could tell them, you could try to anticipate because sometimes you miss something. A student will react and you will be, Oh, I didn't realize this image was challenging in this or this way. But when, you know, it's you're in front of students, you could, um, introduce the image in a way so that people, you know, know what they will face. With a book, it's it's a bit more difficult. But yeah, I think that's really important, us as scholars, that we ask ourselves what is our impact in the world, you know, what we are perpetuating and what is really our deep intention. Is it to have more readers? And in this case, yes, <laughs> a big book and lovely image, color and glossy paper works quite well. Um, so yeah, it's, we, we have to always be self-reflective. But I do acknowledge that this is difficult um, and that the book um, Sex, Race and Colony was, it's, it's an important book that, you know, I bought the book and I was delighted that first they could talk about the sexual fetishization of, you know, black women. That was such a taboo subject and that was a subject nobody was talking about, but that they were really um, international conversation. And after this book, uh, a lot of the scholars wrote scholar, more scholarly book. So I, I do think that even if, you know, Officially, nobody, you know, they were kind of, no, 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 they, we are right, <laughs> they are wrong. I do think that make them think, if you see what I mean. So that was really important that this collective, this young woman stand up to say, no, we want to know that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's really important. Um, and I think another thing that while you were speaking, it made me think, I'm hoping in this age of pictures, <laughs> um, we'll have lots more to show in the future um, in terms of Black women representation. Um, so yeah, when you put these images side by side um, and you're faced with this choice of like, well, what do I reproduce? Uh, I'm like, well, how is this gonna look like, you know, 30 years from now? I'm hoping scholars of the future will have more to work with. And that's where I look to Instagram. I'm like, maybe that's one of the positive things of Instagram. <laughs> you know, it's going to be, um, I see it as a yellow book for me at this point, but it's also going to be another um, archive that's going to be interesting to see, right? On the condition people don't delete their stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's extremely important what you're saying you know um i mean first i could see there's a wonderful tendency in academia uh, right now is not to study what i study but i really for me i needed to study i wanted to understand dominant ideology in france but this is just a first step and this book needs to be read with you know over book where this time exactly what you said that's how black women also represent themselves you know choose to represent themselves self-fashioning because all their life um black people have been so you know um, involved in this self-fashioning of their identity. They really have resist. So we need book about this subject. Uh, so my book is just a kind of, you know, it's one pieces of the puzzle. It needs a lot of other book. Um, and what you say is extremely important. 
um, first that will definitely be a new archive, which is at risk, we are at risk of losing it because, as you said, <laughs> um, people delete image where they think, oh, it's no more me. Oh, you know, I move on and now <laughs> and I don't it's want this. Like it's being made and deleted at the same time. It's like a, a, a machine that's it's creating and capturing the world. and But then it also deletes it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> You need to create a project where, you know, you approach them and ask their permission to store mm -hmm. them and, yeah. you know. And it's a this... little bit of stalking because it's like, hey, I saw you had this wonderful image. <laughs> this is you know, and it's like, I think this is great, and but you deleted it. So, <laughs> but I think, but like you said, there's more representations of showing Black women as not a monolith. We're not all the same. We're very different. <laughs> You know, and so <laughs> that image, I'm just like, we need to, we need to capture it. So, um, yeah. And another thing I thought about while reading your book, we've discussed racial alterity, but I'm sure you've had reflections on power and the nature of power yourself. So if you could, you know, speak a little, what do you think now of power after finishing, you know, this project of what did power, like, what did the nature of power, what did it show you or maybe not show you? Um, so any new reflections on how power is asserted over humans <laughs> and non-human communities? Look, um, yeah, you're completely right. I, I was just not interested in just studying, you know, the, the construction of racial alterity. I was thinking... Yeah, but what about this notion of power? And this is why I wanted to have this holistic view. Now, you know, after finishing the book where, despite spending so much time working on the book, you still feel like, oh, I should write 10 more books to speak about, you know, the subject. But what really did strike me is power is so intricate. I mean, something I show in the book is how much per century um, decades, this image of animalized black woman is linked with technology of mobilities. And, you know, yeah, power is an intricate thing. It's everywhere. And it's why it's so difficult to dismantle. Um, so, yeah, this, this impression of the complexity of power, that's really something I, I, I felt writing, um, the book. But the other things that I felt thinking of power and thinking we really need a paradigm shift in, you know, the way we, we approach this question. I think somehow I'm less interested at the day of today about the question, what is power? I'm more interested at how we fight it, how we fight ideology of, you know, ranking. How, the, you see what I mean? There was after writing the book, I felt, yeah, okay, uh, here I could see the intricacy of power and all this, you know, that's so complex. And here I could see how easily we naturalize power. Um, I was really shocked, for instance, when I begin reading The Suffering of Non-Human Animal, you know, written by specialists who explain what's going on in the mind of a bird in cage and how the bird you know, injure itself, etc. Um, 
yeah, I, I found it really interesting because I was just thinking, if every, if we were knowing I mean, how much pain it is, will that change our behavior? Um, so, um, or we don't know all of that because we don't want to know. <laughs> so that's Andy, we could continue. But that was interesting that somehow how we naturalize certain form of power. And exactly as you said, with non-human animals, some of them we think deserve respect when they fit certain purpose and some of them don't, etc. So yes, intricate, easy to naturalize. But ultimately, I think the question for me at the day of today is, yeah, how do we fight this ideology of ranking in a very concrete way, if you see what I mean, not in a theoretical way, which is important. We need, you know, to go through this process. But let's have a bit of action. <laughs> <laughs> that was, um, that's definitely a, a good takeaway. And if there was something else, I don't know if you were, when you were writing the book, you had an image of someone reading your book, <laughs> you know, either on the beach or the fireplace <laughs> um, or just, um, you know, just at a coffee shop. But what would you want someone to walk away with your book? Any new ideas, new ways of thinking, curiosities, um, yeah, I mean, I think that when looking at this collective image, this French archive that we have, I would like people to be able to handle the tension between, you see, for example, I think of image of um, 17th century, 18th century, aristocratic woman was surrounded by non-human animals such as parrot and little servant, <laughs> black boy, um, I wrote a lot at um, this um, kind of image in my book. When you show this kind of image, a lot of people will just speak about, you know, the beauty of the image, the craft of the artist. But I would like people to see the immense pain of this little boy who have been separated from his family, the pain of his enslaved parents working in the colony. Um, I want to see the you know, the thousand of non-human animals, million which has been uh, brought back uh, to die in France, etc. So I, I want people to handle this tension. And it seems that people have difficulty handling this complexity. They kind of, you know, we need to see them both. Um, we need to face, to face the past to be able to think of the future. Um, and in a very concrete way, I do think we need to readjust the past, you know, go back and show, as I said, this kind of image, what they convey. But there's a whole lot of image and story that we need to show. Um, what about all the knowledge and story accumulates before slavery, for example? What about the participation of black people in the construction of modernity? So I'm really glad to see that there's more and more exhibition, such as, you know, um, um, the Model Noir, which was based on uh, an exhibition organized by um, Denise Murel, who is a scholar at Columbia University, showing uh, how important a black model were for, you know, uh, French art history, etc. Um, so we need to dig uh, this image. So we need to readjust the past 
And we really need, in terms of image, imagination, we need to reimagine the future. Um, we have having an imaginary, which is an imaginary of conquest, conquest of nature, uh, not only of, uh, you know, controlling nature, but even recreate nature. I mean, it's, it's going really far in terms of what's going on in the future. And, um, yes, um, we have so much to do to create an image with a holistic, creative view. Uh, we need a paradigm shift to reinvent our whole relationship, um, with how we interact with nature. We are part of it. <laughs> yes, we are. And how about you? How um, do you walk away from this book? How did the process of writing and editing and refining, <laughs> <laughs> how did it leave you? And um, maybe did it lead you to a new project if you're working on anything else? Well, um, I think I'm still digesting the book. That has been a very... Uh, excruciating uh, journey, <laughs> a lonely journey, which it needed to be, if you see what I mean. Um, I think that um, the big takeaway for me is that I didn't just want to be a scholar. I think scholars are really important. And, you know, every day I deal with students and I could see the difference I make in their life. But somehow also on top of that, be, I would like to be a citizen. So as I say early on, I will have a more active approach. Um, and I think we don't have, there's an emergency to change things. <laughs> and uh, so I want, I would like to have more concrete action. So I am uh, writing a children's book. Uh, and this is project close to my art because um they are children are the next generation. You know, they will design the world of tomorrow. And you really hope that they won't do the same mistake <laughs> <laughs> as we did. Um, hearing my student, I've got more hope, you know, that's something that cheer me up. But, you know, I'm not sure they're always representative of the world of today. <laughs> so, yes, um, I think that uh, there's an emergency and we need to... I want to go behind the narrow border of academia, you know, to try to reinvent something. So everything is in front mm -hmm. of me. I need to, you know, um, reimagine everything in my life too. Thank you so much, Dr. Silverstein, for joining us. And um, when the children's book is out, please feel free to come back <laughs> and we can talk about it. But thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your invitation.